This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot... Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to Nomads Past and Present. I'm your host, Maggie, and my guest today is Kobe Pellad. Kobe is an architect, historian, and professor at Ben-Gurion University of the Negev in the Ben-Gurion Research Institute for the Study of Israel and Zionism, where his work deals primarily with the cultural history of the Palestinians, and in particular, the Palestinian Arab citizens of Israel. His book, Words Like Daggers, The Political Poetry of the Negev Bedouin, was published by Brill in 2022, and that's the topic that we'll be discussing today. So thank you so much, Kobe, for joining me. Thank you, Maggie. It's a pleasure. So to start off and to maybe orient listeners to this topic, could you explain in broad strokes sort of the historical and social context of the Negev Bedouin when we say the Negev Bedouin, what does that mean exactly? Who does that refer to? Sort of what's the area of the Negev um, that listeners should be picturing? How are the Negev Bedouin maybe distinct from other Bedouin populations in the Middle East? Well, it's a great question. Many questions uh, encapsulated in one question. Yes, and a highly political uh, question, of course. Even the the name of the territory itself, the Negev, is is, is pronounced Nagab uh, uh, or among the Bedouin, and in Hebrew and English, quite often the the Negev. So, actually, it's located in the southern part of Israel. Israel is in the Middle East, and the Negev is actually a continuation of the Sinai Desert. It's a a desert area, an arid area. Um, and the Bedouin actually still dwell in the Negev. They have been living in the Negev uh, for centuries. Some of them, uh, a small uh, group of them, or certain tribal groups, um, uh, have been living in the Negev for centuries and centuries. Others have migrated to the Negev from, uh, mainly from the Sinai, uh, some from uh, Transjordan. Um, prior to 48, 
uh, during the first half of the 20th century and throughout the 19th century, uh, the three largest confederations that dwelled in the Negev were actually uh, confederations, large groups, large political and uh, social um, uh, alliances of, of tribal groups uh, who migrated uh, at the early 19th century or so from Sinai. Their relatives, uh, people of the Azazme, for example, the Azazme Confederation, the Tarabin Confederation, the Tiaha Confederations, those were the three largest confederations still live in uh, both in, uh, in the Sinai, some in uh, Egypt as well, some in uh, the West Bank, some in Jordan, so they are, they are scattered all around. Um, still today, even though there's a, there's a border very well kept between Israel and Egypt, there are relations between the group in, in the, between those 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 groups in terms, for example, of customary law. Um, Bedouin of the Sinai are still considered among Bedouin of the Negev as uh, authorities in customary law. So if there's a, a huge issue discussed here in the Negev uh, without a proper judicial answer, then the answer would be uh, given by someone, by, by, a, by a special judge from the Sinai. It means that relations still, still exist. Um, about, um, about the fact that, that they are part of Israel. They are Israeli citizens. Uh, they have been Israeli citizens right from the start, from when the uh, Jewish state was established in 48. Um, but to a large extent, they live separately um, from the rest of Israeli society. Some, of course, maintain contacts, um, but they have their own schools, they have their own communities, except for the town of, uh, or the city of Be'er Sheva, where Jews and Arabs, Arabs, Palestinian Arab Israelis and Bedouin Arab Israelis live. Um, we are detached from each other to, to a large extent. Um, there are many things to, to say about them as a population. Uh, they number some uh, 300,000 as of uh, today, which is not a large percentage uh, but, uh, but demographically, they're growing. Still, families are very, um, very large families. Um, um, I have a friend who lives not very far from where, where I live. I live in the Negev as well, in a place called Sdebokel. And my friend, who's a son of a famous poet, lives uh, some 30 kilometers um, uh, west from where I live, northwest from where I live, and would you like to guess how many kids he has? Oh, that's tricky. Like, I'm going to say 12. Yeah, 12 is the number of women with whom he has been married. I mean, currently has four wives. And, um, you know, when you ask about boys, you ask about kids, you, you may be asking about boys at first. Uh, in Arabic, you say "kam walad." In Hebrew, you may be wrong. I mean, by staying by saying that 
how many kids you have. But in Arabic, you may be saying, you know, I have 18 boys. He has 18 boys and 18 girls, 36. So 36 in total. Yeah, quite recently, he told me I established a, a little tribe. <laughs> yeah, so demographically, they're, they're growing. And polygamy, as you may understand, is is a real problem. It's against the law in Israel, in the Negev as well, but it's not enforced, un unfortunately. Interesting. Um, so let's talk about poetry then, which is the focus of your book um, and of your research for this book. So you are using this poetic corpus. Can you talk about how you collected that, sort of what the nature of that kind of poetic corpus is, um, and maybe as well also sort of what's the significance of poetry to the Bedouin, to the Negev Bedouin? Well, again, two wonderful questions. Actually, in terms of the first question of how I collected those poems, I didn't do much. Um, again, I must tell you, someone else did all the hard work and I did some field work myself up in the Galilee, specifically in the Upper Galilee. I collected stories and poems as well among Felahin, among the people of the, um, the Galilee, uh, both Muslims and Christians and Druze, uh, both city dwellers and Felahin and Bedouin as well. And I've been studying um, stories uh, of families in Wadi Ara, that's a centra, central region in Israel where mostly populated by Muslim Palestinian Arabs. Um, but here in the Negev, I, I, I did very little work of collecting material, very little field work, because a guy, and a, a person called Sasson Bartzvi, was born in Jerusalem of the Mandate period, in specifically in 1924. Uh, grew up in, in Jerusalem, speaking both Hebrew, Ladino, and Arabic. Uh, he did all the work, and he actually is an interesting figure, this guy, Bartzvi. His origins, his family origins are from uh, Basra. He's an Iraqi Jew uh, who lived for several generations. I mean, the family lived for several generations in Jerusalem, and, and he was, like many other Iraqi Jews, recruited by the Haganah, the uh, main militia uh, of the Jewish yeshuv, of the Jewish settlement uh, during the, the, the British Mandate period. And, and at a very young age, um, at about 20, when he was 20, he was sent by the Haganah to the then southernmost point in the Jewish settlement in the Negev um, to collect information, to establish contacts with the Bedouin, uh, to see who was friendly to the Jewish cause, to the Zionist cause, and who was unfriendly, and also to work for the acclimatization of the kibbutz in those surroundings. Uh, one must remember that uh, Jews did not settle in the, in the Negev uh, until the early 40s, apart from um, 
this, the town of Be'er Sheva, where Jews uh, settled until the riots of 1921. I mean, there were Jews for some 25 years in Be'er Sheva. You know, Be'er Sheva, the town of Be'er Sheva was established by the Ottomans as some kind of a town and a stronghold against the against the British domination of then uh, Egypt um, and um, and Sasson Bartzvi was sent to an area largely populated by by Bedouin and very few Jews back then so um, in the mid 40s he was involved in in this mostly security activity I think uh, but Coming into the shigs, the, the guest tents of the Bedouin, he established contacts with them and um, uh, became friends with uh, some of them. And actually, I think he came to, in an extent, you, in some way you could say he came to conquer them, to know them in order to, to better rule them, if you will, or to understand them, and became conquered. Uh, by their uh, by, by their culture and poetry and and actually started at a very uh, uh, early stage in the mid 40s um, together with another person called Aryeh Yechieli both of them lived in Mitzper Revivim uh, down south in the Negev uh, they both collected poetry Yechieli was uh, interested more, more in, in the melodies, in the music, and Bartzvi more in the words. Uh, and then he started collecting poetry, continued collecting poetry while he was a, an officer of the military government, um, Bedouin of the Negev, from, as well as Palestinians in Israel, uh, in general, were put under military government from 1948 until 1966. Uh, so, after Beersheba was conquered by the Jews in October 48, he moved to the town of Beersheba and became an officer in the military government um, due to his knowledge of, of the Bedouin. Uh, until he reached the, the rank of military governor of the Negev in the, in the mid-60s. By that time, the military government was quite weak and uh, uh, it was abolished in 1966. But during those years, he collected lots of poems and proverbs and stories, interviewed many people, and when, he, and when the job was over, uh, he joined the Beersheva, the Beersheva municipality in the early 70s and he was still in love with with Bedouin poetry with Bedouin culture so it's an interesting mixture of domination and and an interesting contact which is I mean it's it's not pure friendship uh, is there anything like pure friendship I, I believe it's it's possible but um, it's an interesting mix that he had, and you could see from also what the Bedouins say about him, those that still remember him today. I mean, I did some interviews, obviously I did some, some work myself, uh, but the large body of collecting the poems 
was done by this guy, by Sasson Bartzvi, uh, for some 50 years and until, I mean, he died in 2012 and two years and before his death, he was still in the, in the business, not collecting poems because um, there were no real poets, no great poets in the Negev, unlike the unlike neighboring countries where uh, Bedouin poetry is still a living tradition or a tradition um, supported by the government, like in the Gulf countries here in the Negev, the situation is totally different. It's a Jewish hegemony and, and in terms of supporting heritage and supporting their old way, way of life, there's there is little that is done by, by the government. So basically these traditions were to a large extent forgotten and forsaken. And actually Batsvi felt that he was rescuing and indeed he did rescue so many poems from oblivion. So he did <laughs> quite a, a lot of work of uh, um, collecting poems and transliterating the poems, transcribing the poems, that is, and translating into Hebrew. And actually, I followed in his footsteps. And he was more of a field work, you know, a watchman. He liked to be in the shigs, and he did not contextualize the poems. He did not analyze the poems. He did not try much to interpret the poems, although he had interesting insights and a great understanding of Bedouin life and, and poetry, still he was not interested. He had no academic background. He was just interesting, interested in preserving the poems. So he left behind him thousands and thousands of pages full of stories and, and memories and descriptions of, of, uh, of customs and also uh, hundreds and hundreds of, of poems. So it's a great treasure of a, of a society uh, and the treasure belongs to the Bedouin. It was created by Bedouin poets and uh, transmitted by, by the Bedouins and, uh, but mostly forgotten. Uh, as of today, so very little, uh, I mean, few people are interested uh, in, in this tradition, but I believe that sometime in the future they will go back and ask themselves where are these uh, origins of, 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 of the little that we know. Uh, so I took only the political poetry, but you'd find lots of poems about, about wandering, about coffee, about tobacco, about love, about agriculture, about all, all ways of lives. Uh, I mean, you you've, you you really have a treasure trove of of a, of a culture. So I also somewhat answer the question about the significance. I think. Yeah, yeah. So I suppose that's your contribution in your book, right? Is taking this huge body of poetry that wasn't otherwise sort of analyzed uh, and identifying the political strains within the poems um, and identifying how the Bedouin sort of throughout the, what is it, sort of 75 years or so um, of history that the this poetic corpus covers, um, how the Bedouin used 
poetry to react and respond to kind of the political forces and political changes um, that were going on around them and that they were also participating in, right? Um, So I suppose I think we can maybe kind of proceed through that history um, the way you have laid it out in your book, um, which is starting in the late Ottoman period, sort of in the late um, 19th century. Um, And so can you talk a little bit about what that period of history was like for the Bedouins, sort of how they interacted um, with the Ottoman state, how the Ottoman state kind of perceived the Negev Bedouin. You already brought up um, the founding of Beersheba um, as a city founded by the Bedouin or, or by the Ottomans um, as a kind of town for the Bedouin um, in the Negev region. So if you could maybe elucidate a little bit on that history for listeners. Yes, um, sure. Uh, I think you were um, very right in, in the way you describe those relations between history and poetry. Actually, I tried to use history and contextualize the poems and, and carefully read each and every word in order to fully understand it as much as I could, because I couldn't go to the poets and I couldn't go to Batsvi himself. I mean, all these people are, are already gone and so I have the words. Of course, I can go to the relatives. I can go to poets uh, who work today, but many of the words are already forgotten. Um, so it is quite difficult to um, provide a full uh, analysis here. So I try to use history in order to better understand poetry but also I try to use poetry in order to rewrite history, to better understand history and actually write poetry into history. Uh, So there's an interesting dialogue here, I believe, because when you try to understand a period, no matter if it's it's Bedouin, Ottoman, if it's it's poetry, if it's Arabic, poetry is always an interesting um, window or an interesting perspective to understand a culture, intimate things and, and, and inner sentiments and things that quite often are, are not pronounced uh, in other modes are, are being uh, pronounced and, and actually expressed in poetry. In terms of the poetry of the 19th century, we know quite a, quite a lot about that period, mainly through the work of Clinton Bailey, who studied uh, particularly poetry in Sinai and actually followed in the footsteps of Arif al-Arif, a scholar and a a governor of uh, the Beersheba sub-district under the British uh, authorities and in footsteps of other scholars uh, who studied um, the Bedouin poetry of the 19th century Uh, It was mostly a poetry uh, of the tribal wars in terms of the political poetry. Poetry served as a tool uh, sharper there than any uh, lance and and, and, uh, a terrible tool sometimes, you know, in a society where words mean so much and a person's uh, name and, and dignity and honor are 
actually governed uh, uh, by words. If you say something about about me, if I say something about you, and we were living in such a society across across space and across time, these words still exist. So uh, poetry in the time of the Ottoman rule of the Negev was a sharp and dangerous weapon. Anytime a leader would want to offend an opponent in another tribe, <clears throat> he would summon the poet to his shig, to his guest tent, and, and actually invite a poem to offend an enemy, a poem uh, to gain support, a poem to convince uh, an ally to join uh, the alliance. Uh, so, uh, in this sense, um, the Bedouin lived their own lives quite far away from the Ottomans throughout most of the first half of the 19th century. They were struggling among them for the little uh, resources that we have in the Negev in terms of water and land. Uh, if you had a strong group with you, it meant that you would survive. If you had uh, very few men to support you, uh, and I mean, some of the poems in the book actually uh, exemplify and demonstrate this uh, insight or this uh, understanding, then with very little men that you have, you couldn't protect the well, you couldn't protect the assets that you had. So in this sense, poetry was a means of strengthening your 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 position in a uh, difficult surrounding. Uh, perhaps this is a functionalist, uh, Darwinistic, uh, somewhat uh, perspective on on life. Uh, but when you go in the desert, this perspective, this functionalist mode of explanation, uh, is to an extent viable. Surely poetry was a way to amuse ourselves. And also, it was some kind, I believe, uh, of a theater to, to, to perform what we have in our lives, also in the tribal wars period under the Ottoman uh, rule. Uh, but I focus in my research on political poetry. And in this sense, uh, as long as the Ottoman were relatively not so strong and not... Uh, uh, interfering too much in the Bedouins' wars and and lives, then poetry, political poetry, as a as a weapon, thrived. Now, when uh, the Suez Canal was inaugurated in 1869, and Egypt conquered by the British in 1882, and things were changing in in the world, the Ottomans tried to reform their government and to get a, a better control of the Arab periphery, both in Transjordan and in Palestine and in uh, southern Syria of that time. Um, then they, uh, their interference with the wars that the Bedouin had and with the Bedouin politics in the Negev uh, intensified. The stronger their influence grew, the weaker the Bedouin leaders became. Eventually, the Ottomans, towards the end of the 19th century, started to interfere with the 
Bedouin uh, internal struggles, even sending uh, armies and capturing the leaders, the sheikhs, taking them to Jerusalem. Be'er Sheva was not uh, uh, established then, and some of them died in jail in Jerusalem. Some were held in prison for years and years, and uh, gradually uh, Bedouin poetry changed its character. Some sometime around the turn of the century, perhaps a little bit before the turn of the century, and with the establishment of Be'er Sheva towards the very first years of the 20th century, um, as far as I understand it, poets became more gradually more and more critical with regard to the weakness of their leaders. And that's a huge change in political poetry. Prior to that, when the Ottomans were relatively weak or they did not interfere, then poets were serving the goal of the tribe and the tribe's leader, the sheikh. And when the sheikh became uh, a weak political figure, then uh, poets uh, addressed their uh, verses against this person. And gradually, uh, they became uh, more independent in, in their verses and in their criticism. Prior to that, the criticism was addressed outwardly towards the enemies, towards the rivals, towards people who were neutral. And after that, uh, after this change and the establishment of the town of Be'er Sheva is a major point here, uh, they directed their anger uh, with the conditions, with the current condition of the Bedouin towards their own leaders. The leaders sought to buy houses in Be'er Sheva. The Ottomans offered land land that today costs a lot of money in Be'er Sheva and in the Negev was offered almost for free. And Bedouin leaders bought land and built houses in the town of Be'er Sheva. The Ottomans wanted the Bedouin to become more sedentarized. They tried to um, um, make the town of Be'er Sheva as a center for the sedentarization process of, of the of the Bedouin. So gradually the leaders uh, in the eyes of the poets became corrupt. They followed the ways of, of the city. And this is actually much like in Ibn Khaldun's uh, theory, city life as a, as a moment of a, of a great uh, achievement in terms of culture, but in terms of the theory, the moment of decline where things start to to collapse. So Ibn Khaldun, if he was present at that time, would have described in similar terms, I believe, uh, that process. Yeah, I think it's really interesting what you just brought up about the relationships between the poets and the kind of tribal leaders and how poetry reflects those kind of intertribal relations and not just how the Bedouins sort of interacted with external state authorities, but also how poets sort of perceived um, and then kind of described their relationships to tribal authorities as well. Um, so maybe this would be a good time to ask about the identities of those poets. You know, who should we be imagining those poets were? What was their 
function within a tribe solely to be kind of a tri- the tribal poet. You know, you mentioned this process of uh, Sheikh like commissioning um, a poem directed at a rival. Is that how we should kind of imagine that all of these poems were being created? Was under this kind of Sheikhly patronage, or what did that what did that look like? It's a great question. I'm not sure what did it look like. Uh, I can only imagine out of the little information that uh, we have here in the Negev, and I could compare also with uh, what we know from uh, other places, um, neighboring countries in the Middle East. It could be that the, I mean, during the tribal war periods, the tribal wars period in, in the Negev, that is the 19th century, I think that would summarize the position of the of the poets uh, though I should add, I mean, the poet would be summoned to the shig unless the sheikh himself was capable of pronouncing words of being of a, uh, having a rhetoric uh, uh, ability. You know, perhaps not everyone could be an accomplished poet. Many people can, can uh, recite uh, verses, but really invent poetry, uh, use certain... Uh, uh, words or even phrases that already exist, but in a creative manner, I think this is a talent, and this this talent is like a gift. I'm always asking this question, Maggie, uh, posing this question for my Bedouin friends. How would you explain uh, this kind of gift? Sometimes you see that there are certain poets in a family. Uh, so maybe um, it's a genetic thing. It's it, it's an ability that is being nurtured in a family. But quite often, one generation speaks poetry. The next generation cannot cannot invent uh, verses. So I think that in the 19th century, I think pretty much it is it is the case. I may add only the fact that a person with a with a great ability with a with a with a talent for words. Uh, had some uh, political position of of his own. You couldn't force him uh, to say anything. I mean, you could influence quite quite uh, uh, to a large extent uh, because I mean, if I were the sheikh and I wanted a certain point, but I could not dictate. We see stories even from the late 19th century where a poet is unhappy with something. And, and, you know, because words are so precious and valuable in Arab culture in general, I should say, in, and in Bedouin culture in particular, then uh, my addition is that a person with a, with, rhetorics, with a rhetoric talent has some kind of his own, uh, his own power. But uh, he wouldn't be able, if he offended the, the sheikh, he would get into real trouble because the real political power, the ability to summon men to battle in uh, the period of the tribal wars in the, most of the 19th century and the entire century was uh, an ongoing struggle for hegemony and and for and for land and water. Uh, this was the case. Later, it became a little bit different. And um, we find 
specifically in the British mandate period, uh, we have some a dozen of, of poems, not, not more than that, that criticize the, the tribal leaders for selling land to the Jews. And this is a, a total difference from what we would find in the tribal wars period that lasted to the end of the 19th century and to an extent continued partially in the early stage of the, of the 20th century. We find at first a subtle criticism towards the sheikhs, uh, not mentioning their names, uh, hinting at a person who uh, cooperated with the Zionist movement because the Jews in the mid-20s later on in the mid-30s, and still within the Arab revolt of 36 till 39, continued purchasing land in the Negev. They did not purchase this land from others, but from the sheikhs and, and all sorts of uh, mediators. And the Palestinian national movement tried to recruit um, the Bedouin sheikhs and the Bedouin leaders to prevent the sale of land, of, of Bedouin land, of, uh, of Negev land to the, to the Zionists, they were unsuccessful. So we find poems directed against this uh, phenomenon. Poems with uh, uh, some of them with also a prophetic tone. I mean, a poet would say, you'd lose everything if you continue with this and and the whole the whole poem is is not only about criticizing the sheikhs but also criticizing us the Bedouin. I mean, we follow in the footsteps of of the sheikh. We've changed dramatically. We move to the city of uh, Be'er Sheva. We change our ways. Once our leaders uh, were very strong, we would obey those leaders. And today our leaders are corrupt. They uh, build homes in houses, uh, mansions. They are called in Bedouin Arabic palaces in, in the town, in the city of Be'er Sheba, and they don't mingle with their own uh, tribesmen. They are unaware of the problems that we face. And what they do, they take the land, according to the poets, and sell it. The land that belongs to the tribe, they sell it to the, to the Zionists. So towards 46 and 47, the tone intensifies and the poets harshly criticize those, uh, those leaders who, who sold land using their names. It is uh, something, I mean, still poetry is quite, I mean, I think to an extent poetry is always subtle, and specifically Bedouin poetry, full of insinuations, because words are so precious and words are so harmful, and you could you could praise someone and you and you could really destroy a person with words. So they are constantly careful, but also gradually uh, harsher and 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 more daring in their criticism of this phenomenon. Mm, yeah, yeah. So you 
address what was going to be my next question about um, the British mandate and the political changes that occur then, and especially how those changes um, are reflected in poetry um, and around the theme of land sales and the criticism um, by the poets of land sales um, to Jewish settlers. Uh, So maybe we can move on to the next kind of stage in the story, uh, which is the end of the British mandate um, and the formation of the state of Israel in 1948. So what happens to the Negev Bedouin then? You know, what are the effects of the Nakba um, on the Bedouin of the Negev and how are those effects in turn reflected in their poetry? Again, uh, a huge topic, Maggie. I think uh, it's it's a terrible trauma for the Bedouin in terms of numbers prior to the uh, occupation of of the Negev in the 1948 Arab-Israeli War by by the Jewish side. The Negev was um, populated by. I mean, we don't know the exact numbers, but uh, somewhat something like 65,000. Uh, Bedouin Palestinian assessments uh, tend to uh, to say that more than seventy thousand, even hundred thousand um, Jewish uh, um, uh, estimations tend to send, say some fifty thousand. At a certain point during the war, only a few thousand remained. Um, I don't remember now the exact date, but there is a certain point right after the war, when the battles end, that there are some 4,000 Bedouin in the Negev. Imagine that out of some 6-7% of, of, of the Bedouin that dwelled in the Negev before. Many, of course, fled to Egypt and Jordan. Some were expelled. Uh, some were even returned by the Jews in contrast to the Israeli policy of uh, not allowing refugees to return in other uh, areas of, of the country, except for certain uh, cases where Israel was pushed to return Christians in, in Galilean villages, for example, for interna- because of international pressure or I- Israel's uh, um, image. Uh, consideration in the international arena. Uh, some 10,000 Bedouin were uh, returned to the Negev in the late 40s and early 50s, but it was a terrible condition for several years for the Bedouin. People were uh, going inside, going outside, and uh, eventually when uh, when this um, terrible situation, the movement of people and the deportation of people and uh, the return of people and and uh, those internal struggles that still need to be studied, we know still need to be studied. We know very little actually of the chaos of of those very first years. Um, in fifty three or fifty four, some eleven or twelve thousand Bedouin. Um, were counted in the Negev. So it is a trauma, a demographic disaster. Uh, Families were torn apart. Um, I mentioned my friend with his 36 uh, children who lives not far from me. He's 
father was an accomplished poet who remained uh, with his own mother in Israel in 1948. But the elder brother, who was, uh, who was a poet, uh, again, a, an accomplished poet uh, we, who favored the Palestinian national movement, as far as we can understand from his poetry, because we know very little about those poets. Information is lost, unfortunately. The, the elder brother had to migrate or had to live under conditions that I do not know. Uh, maybe he was expelled, maybe he decided, we do not know. Uh, it's very difficult to gain information, but he had to live for Jordan. And when I look for information in Jordan, that's very hard. Maybe precisely or specifically because I'm a Jewish Israeli, uh, but for others it's not easy as well. Um, so a terrible uh, disaster befell the, uh, the Bedouin population. And of course they were enclosed, most of them, in a, in, in, in a restricted area East, of, east and north of Be'er Sheba, called the Saeg area, uh, where Bedouin who dwelt, for example, in the Western Negev, uh, were relocated into this area. Um, so their lives changed dramatically. Uh, all contacts that they had uh, with Arab countries, with neighboring Bedouin tribes, with tribes in Transjordan and, and Sinai, uh, these contacts dramatically changed. Uh, they, their movements were restricted. Um, what was left of their tribal organization was reorganized uh, by the military rule, by people like Sasson Barzvi himself, in order to better govern them and rule them. Some of the leaders were authentic leaders. Some of them were leaders appointed by Israel. The groups were not the the natural groups, so to speak, that evolved throughout, throughout the years during the British mandate, They're, they were regrouped by the state authorities, put together, and a sheikh, a leader, will, um, uh, will be appointed. Quite often, this leader had, a, had an authority. Uh, quite often, the leader was a son of a previous leader, uh, but not always. Uh, so, in terms of their social organization and their political organization, there was a huge change, a huge transformation. Um, eventually, they became Israelis, but until 1966, restricted. And, of course, uh, uh, discriminated against in later periods as well because the hegemony is in this country a it's a it's a jewish homeland it's a it's a jewish a jewish state and um they they had to um to follow uh those uh those rules and and i mean uh their their lives really really change in the poetry uh that we have reflects this change we have uh, i mean i assume that so many poems were composed and also at that time um, we find some written poetry 
then you see that then oral culture is changing and and written material enters the scene uh, so we have a few poems half a dozen poems or so from the very early stages of the military rule and we find in these poems um, opposition and protest uh, that is i think that poetry in that period of the early 50s and, and late 40s actually maintain some kind of a sense of pride, a sense of who we are. Actually by, uh, it seems to me, through reading those poems and analyzing them, that actually the poets say, we are still active, we are still alive. Although what happened in the Nakba, what happened in the war and the destruction of our lives, we are still capable of saying something and saying something not only about uh, coffee and tobacco, saying something about our political condition. And this is a marvelous thing, I think. And Balzvi had a, a role here. And then again, an interesting role. On the one hand, he was the eyes and ears of the government. He would spy on those people. But on the other hand, he was very fond of their poetry. And we see it, we see it because he, he transcribed poems hundreds and hundreds of poems to a, to an, to a, a late age, I mean, his own age, until he was an old man, loved poems, poems unrelated to politics. He really liked poetry. That's my understanding. So in the early stages of the military rule, we find an interesting situation where poets uh, say whatever they believe, of course, they are careful, but an interesting mix of being careful and daring, and they say it to the military officer himself, to Bartzvi. And sometimes they include his own figure in their poems and not only praises they have for him. Uh, some of those poems describe him as a violent person, a violent person to admire and to fear and to despise I mean, the poems are uh, an interesting, it's an interesting situation. Later on, we do not know what happens with the poetry because we have some years that we don't have any poems. I don't know why um, maybe poets composed poems but did not uh, say them to Bartzvi himself. In Bailey's uh, book, there are only two poems and of, of, of this period. So I do not know much. In the late 50s, though, we have several letters sent uh, to Bartzvi as a, an important figure in the military rule, asking him all sorts of uh, things people ask the military government, the governor. Hey, bring me my gun back. We have dozens and dozens of exa examples of written letters sent by Palestinians and by Bedouin to the military government, but because they knew that Bartzvi liked poetry so much, and they probably knew that it was a way to convince him. And it's an old thing in Arab culture. If you want to convince someone, you don't just say it. You, you use meter and rhyme in order to say it. Thus, the, the weight of your words is, is heavier. So bring me my gun back. Make me uh, the appointed sheikh 
of this tribe because you remember that I helped you when Israel was attacked by the Egyptians uh, and, and some words of thank you to Bartzvi. Those poems of the late 50s and early 60s are less, um, less uh, critical with regard to Bartzvi, maybe because he's, he's, he's become very powerful. With one word, he could destroy their lives. He was in the position of a poet himself, so to speak. One word from him uh, could change the fate of a person. So in the year 1958, there was a famine and a terrible condition uh, in the Negev. No water, no land, pasture for the herds. And Baltzvi and others, of course, allowed the herds to go up north, up even to Bet She'an, up to the Galilee, in order to uh, uh, that the herds will not die. I mean, the, the British did it as well, and the Israelis continued, uh, also for their own reasons, but people were so thankful, so they wrote letters of thank you, letters of gratitude in poetry to Baltzvi. Some of those are, are kept in his... Uh, in his uh, collections, uh, and then uh, in the 60s, we have very, very few poems that describe uh, the demise of the of the military rule. Mm. Yeah, and so despite what you just said about this kind of assertion in the early years of the military rule, of the kind of ongoing presence of poets um, and the continued kind of creation of poetry, your book and um, Sasson Barzi's collection of poetry sort of ends around the 1967 war. And as you said earlier, the kind of poetic tradition among the Negev Bedouin doesn't really exist anymore and has kind of died out among the current generation and the generation preceding it. So why is that? Why do you think that the... Um, creation of poetry sort of stops when it does? Mm. Uh, frankly, I, I don't have a, a, a good answer for this question. Uh, it needs to be studied. We know, or I assume that poetry did not die, it did not die out, it changed dramatically. If it was um, uh, in the, I mean, we don't know exactly what happened in the 60s. We do know, however, that in the late 60s and more so during the 70s and early 80s, uh, the state of Israel uh, built towns for the Bedouin. A process of sedentarization began uh, with first uh, the town of Tal Saba, not very far from Be'er Sheva, in the late 60s and the largest Arab town in Israel as of today, the town of Rahat, uh, was established in the early 70s. Uh, it's the largest town, it's the largest city in Israel, and it's populated by solely by Muslim Bedouin. And uh, it, when these towns and others were established, again, there is a rise of uh, poets and, uh, I mean, poetry, uh, that we find criticizing um, uh, the process of sedentarization, criticizing the change 
criticizing not only the leaders, but mostly in this period from 67, from 67 till 82, when, when poetry dramatically changes. And those poets, I think those that were left, many of them uh, die or stop uh, composing poetry, then um, we find that there is quite a lot of criticism with regard to the state, the process of sedentarization, the attempt by the state to control and occupy Bedouin lands. Um, they do not live after 66 under military rule, but struggles still continue for land and uh, for recognition and for their rights. And this is the arena where poets actually uh, say their verses. And, and then in the early 80s, something changes. You know, Israel changes. I think that Bedouin poetry is not unrelated to what is going on in Israel. It cannot be. It even may be related to Israeli culture to an extent, though the Bedouin live quite uh, at the periphery of the centers of Israeli or Jewish-Israeli culture. Still, uh, society changes dramatically with the rise of the Likud in 77 and the first Lebanon war. Um, and I think the, they change and they feel that they are maybe that uh, that also it is time that poetry change as well. I mean, it is bound to change because, because it is part of Bedouin life and lifestyle. Everything changes. Relations between uh, tribes. I mean, the, the tribe does not... Uh, stand for what it stood in the past. The sheikh is a very weak person. It's somehow a meaningful person, a meaningless person uh, who was once meaningful. Um, so many things change. Uh, dwelling change. Um, values change. Gender relations change. And gender relations is are used in poetry in order to indicate those changes. In the past, uh, a man was a man, and he would he would say his word, and uh, uh, there was no return. And now we are governed by by women. I mean, unfortunately, these these metaphors um, still appear in poetry of the 80s. And what happened after the the mid or early 80s? I do not know much, and it's it needs to be studied. And actually, Bartzvi felt that the creative energy was lost. And I think Bailey held the same, Clinton Bailey had the same idea. Something changes dramatically. It doesn't mean that poetry dies. There is poetry. But what kind of, we know very little. Again, an area that needs to be studied. Hmm. Interesting. Um, and so maybe a final question as we're coming up on the end of our time. Uh, I was wondering if you could provide an example of one of these poems that you've looked at for listeners, maybe if you have a favorite um, or one that you think is kind of particularly illustrative of the themes that you identified. Well, there are so many themes and so many poems. It's like asking about my kids, who's the favorite? <laughs> <laughs> there is no answer for this, but 
Um, with regard to the change of values, the change of hearts, and the manifestation of this change in poetry, uh, I could cite an interesting encounter between Baltzvi and uh, the father of my friend who has 36 uh, kids and a, a very uh, sensitive and marvelous poet in my view. His name was Sliman Awad Sliman Ibn Aydesan. Um, last Saturday I visited together with his son uh, his resting place at the Negev Junction, not very far from where I live, but no poem is written on the grave, just a simple grave in the desert. Anyway, um, some 17 years before he died, he died in 1992, in the mid-70s, he was still living in a tent, not very far from where I live, south of Be'er Sheva, and Batsvi came for a visit. They were uh, good friends, one could say, though Batsvi was an important figure in the municipality and prior to that he was an important figure in the military government and he was an important figure even before the state was established as a kibbutz member and watchman and in charge of the relations with the Bedouin. So they knew each other for some 30 years. Actually, they first met in 1945. Now, the year is 1975. The poet still lives in the tent, and Baltzvi comes to visit. The process of building the new Bedouin towns has already begun. It's only a beginning, and, and the landscape is uh, really changing before their very eyes. They are sitting in the summer of 1975, hiding from the, from the terrible sun in the shade of Ibn Aydesan's tent and looking at the at at the looking just around uh, they see quite a lot of sheds quite a lot of new uh, uh, buildings these are not stone buildings these are mostly uh, sheds still found today made out of metal and it seems to me that Bartzvi is witnessing the birth of a poem. I cannot be totally sure about it, but the poet uh, Sliman Awad ibn Aydesan says, and I, and I read in English, and later, if you allow me, also in Arabic. He says to Bartzvi, if you build yourself a shed, you save a loaf of bread. And the meaning is, if you build yourself a shed, that is, you lose the tent and you close the door. And if someone wants to visit you and someone is hungry, wants to eat with you, uh, you can close the door and no one will, no one will enter. The tent did not allow it. The tent was open, specifically the guest tent, the shig was open. So you save a loaf of bread. It's like a architectural manif manifestation of, of those values that change. We do not see generosity as we used to see. And it is a pity. It's a nostalgic tone, but nostalgia is always actually about the present, isn't it? And then it seems that he continues his poem 
by saying to Bartsby, we wish to say, if the house is of barrels made, then go straight away, don't hesitate. For, din for dinner, chicken, the light, just a lamp, and the cars ready to fly off. That is, if it is a, a shed, then you don't have to, I mean, you will not find what you what you want what you want there there's no generosity for dinner you you'll only get chicken now you might think that the chicken for dinner is a, is a good thing but in bedouin terms of the world of yesterday it's a bad thing because an honorable way to respect a guest is not chicken but lamb chicken is disrespectful for the guest at least in terms of the old ways and the light the true light was a, was a fire around which people sat and exchanged their experiences and felt together and the warmth of the, uh, and the light itself, the color, just a, just a pale uh, lamp and the cars ready to fly off. Uh, it's, they don't have enough time for you. And in the past, of course, it was not the, the car beside the tent, but, but the camel or the horse. And if a guest came, then you had all the time in the world for a guest. Whenever I speak with my, my friend, uh, the, the poet's son, uh, the, the poet's son, he always say, says, you can always come. <laughs> you are always invited. I'm always at my shig. Uh, actually saying to me something like, I mean, I keep the, the old ways, but his father, the poet, laments, um, the, this uh, immense change, and I read, if you allow me in Arabic, The taxi is not uh, the cab, it is the private car, uh, ready to fly off, I don't have enough time for you. I mean, not me, of course, I have all the time for you in the world, but the poet uh, says, we've changed. And it is the continuation of this poem, just three other verses that he says in the same encounter, in the same afternoon in the summer of 1975. And he continues this train of thought with those three verses, saying, where are the coffee pots? Where is the coffee grounds pile? Where are the tents resting on seven rows of poles? Men of valor and good deeds are all gone. White tents have been replaced with sheds. Justice has gone and headed toward Hebron. Truth is away and the merchants of justice fallen. When Dlal, when Kabitmili, when El Beauty Al Sabdan, Rahu Nashama, Taibin Jmili, Uahl al Fawais. بدلوهن بصرفان وصدق رح وكتصوب الخليلي رح السحيح وطاجر الصدق خسران That is the whole world, the world of coffee pots, the world of the coffee grounds pile put in a certain place uh, in the tent and those tents of uh, resting on seven rows of poles that is tents of wealthy people that they are always open and, and you can always find refuge, drink coffee, rest there, eat your meal there, stay a few days. This is all gone. 
because men of valor and good deeds are all gone. Gone, that is rahu in Arabic, the same meaning in English. They are gone, I mean, but also dead. They are not with us anymore. And those tents have been replaced again with sirfan. The word in Arabic is sirfan, but it's not an Arabic word. And that's my, my last insight, if you allow me. It's a Hebrew word. It's the plural form of Arabic of an Hebrew word, and the word in Hebrew is tzrif. Tzrif in Hebrew is a shed. So the poet uses Hebrew to indicate the pejorative aspect of, of this uh, tremendous transformation associated with uh, the fact that uh, we live, we, the Bedouin, live in a Jewish tent with Jewish technology, with Jewish planning, etc., etc., lamenting uh, those old ways. Thank you. That was beautiful. Um, yeah, that was one of the poems that I myself thought was most interesting um, when I was reading your book because my research is on architecture and architectural practices among the Bedouin, and I thought that poem was such a evocative kind of description of how architectural typologies changed and in turn kind of foster social changes. Um, so that was really interesting to me. Um, there's a lot more that I would love to talk to you about, but I think I've taken up enough of your time today. Um, so I will say thank you so much for coming on to talk to me about the Negev Bedouin and their poetry. And thank you for writing your book, which is, I found beautifully written, not just um, the poems that are contained within it, but also how you sort of explicate on um, the history and culture of the Negev Bedouin and weave poetry into that story. Um, so I highly recommend um, the book to readers of all backgrounds. Thank you so much, Maggie.